Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is Gilles Capel, professor and director of the Middle East and Mediterranean program at the Institute of Political Studies Paris, known as Sciences Po. Gilles is one of the leading authors and experts on the Arab and Islamic world, and he is also the host of the El Monitor video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. Gilles and I will be discussing the visit of French President Emmanuel Macron to the Gulf earlier this month, the impact and expected consequences of the trip for France, the region, and for U.S. policy, and what we can expect from Gilles' upcoming podcast interview with Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, founder of the Sharjah-based Barjil Art Foundation. My conversation with Gilles Capel, who accompanied Macron on his visit to the region, begins now. Gilles, welcome back to On the Middle East. You are our first three-time guest on the show. I'm honored. Gilles, you had a front row seat traveling with French President Macron to the Gulf earlier this month, and you've written about it with Le Grand Continent for our French readers out there. Let's do a scene setter to start. How do you explain and assess President Macron's approach to the Middle East? How's it received in Europe, and do you see it as a compliment or a challenge to U.S. influence in the region? Well, Andrew, you know, it's both a compliment and a challenge uh, to uh, U.S. influence, uh, U.S. influence, which is to some extent perceived as waning by some uh, of the rulers of the Middle East today uh, after the Kabul uh, pullouts. And uh, of course, there is an opportunity uh, to uh, relaunch a closer dialogue with France because uh, France is the only other Western military power. Uh, even if it's much smaller than the U.S. Uh, this necessarily, but the, you know, uh, one of the highlights of the trip was that uh, um, uh, in Dubai, uh, Macron signed a contract uh, for uh, the acquisition of uh, 80 uh, Rafale uh, uh, fighter bombers uh, from Dassault, uh, while uh, the UAE is still awaiting uh, the conclusion of the negotiations of the uh, F-35. So uh, this in the context of, ten of the tensions in the region. Also, Macron uh, went to Dubai first, then Doha, and finally uh, Jeddah. And in a way, the uh, presidential Airbus uh, sort of uh, linked together cities that had been totally separated uh, only a year before. I mean, uh, uh, Qatar was under uh, blockers. You could not go from Abu Dhabi to Doha, from uh, Doha to Jeddah. And in, in a way, it was the first trip of, uh, of a Western uh, leader that uh, uh, took into, um, in, into, into mind uh, the fact that there was this massive reconciliation within the Gulf Cooperation Council. And after Macron left, actually, uh, Mohammed bin Salman made his tour of, uh, of the GCC, going to Amman, then Abu Zabi, then uh, 
Doha and then uh, Bahrain and Kuwait. So um, this was, you know, not only something that had to do with US, uh, European uh, diverging uh, views of, uh, of our relations with, uh, with the Middle East, which is, which is the Near East for us to some extent, more than the Middle East, uh, and because it's on our shores, uh, but it also took place into this major reshuffling that takes place now after uh, the Abraham agreements. And uh, France uh, under Macron wants to play the role of a stabilizing force in an area which is uh, fraught with so many conflicts. Let's start with the, the UAE. And you mentioned that the first stop on the trip was Dubai. And get into a little more detail on the uh, arms sale. $18 billion warplane sale to the UAE, the largest ever French weapons contract for export. Now, the UAE was quick to say that this deal is a complement, not a replacement for the pending USF-35 purchase, um, which is on a steady, if sometimes bumpy track here in Washington, given the opposition of some members of Congress to the arms sale, but it seems like it's going to go through. Was there some payback here with regard to France and toward the United States following the collapse of the $66 billion contract that France had with Australia to buy 12 French nuclear submarines uh, that uh, the U.S. had kind of uh, pulled the rug out under that contract of, as part of its new approach to its relationship with Australia and its military posture in Asia? Well, I don't think it was that much of a tit for tat because, you know, the contract had been under negotiation for so long. But uh, let's say that it, uh, it was uh, a good opportunity to, uh, to show the U.S. that, uh, you know, they cannot just uh, treat their uh, allies, their longest allies like crap probably, uh, but this was the, uh, the sort of the, the, the global understatement, but the, the contract was of course uh, much, much, uh, much older than that. And, um, you know, uh, on the, uh, the, the day uh, after the agreement was signed, there was uh, a statement from uh, Tehran saying that France was destabilizing the region because it was selling wall cranes and definitely Iran felt that uh, the UAE uh, warplanes could be used as a deterrence to uh, Iranian influence. And this took place in a very complex process of, uh, you know, negotiations and uh, um, uh, weaponry building because uh, uh, the day after, uh, Sheikh Tahnoun, uh, who is uh, Mohammed Ben Zayed's brother and his national security advisor, had visited uh, Tehran, so his counterpart, Alim Shamhani. Um, then uh, the, the week before, uh, Mohammed Ben Zayed, the ruler of the UAE, uh, had visited Turkey with a $10 billion uh, check to build up an investment fund there, and also, um, or most probably, to to buy a handful of Barakhtar TB2 drones from Turkey, as was reported in the Monitor. And um, so this is a, this is a very complex uh, system. Uh, you know, uh, everybody comes to Abu Dhabi or to Doha uh, those days. Just before Mohammed bin Salman came, uh, Erdogan had just left. And uh, very recently, uh, 
Prime Minister Bennett from Israel uh, came to to the UAE. So there is there is a lot of uh, elbow rubbing on the one hand and. Uh, uh, great statements, uh, all this in the framework of the difficult uh, reappraisal of the GCPOA talks. So I believe this was, you know, important for not only for, for France, but for Europe, because France is going to be a president of the European Union starting January 1st, to reassess that the future of the region is absolutely quintessential to the developments of Europe because of migration, because of Islamism, political Islam, and what have you. And uh, also because uh, we're so uh, interdependent over the Mediterranean. As I mentioned previously to us, this is the Near East. For America, it is the Middle East. Uh, there's the, the, the Atlantic Ocean in front, uh, in between. Uh, and the Biden administration clearly is not as interested in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization as it was, and is more interested now into the South Pacific, whether or not there will be a treaty organization, I don't know. Uh, but definitely uh, the Europeans have to take things into their hands. And uh, this was clearly something that Macron wanted to underline. You mentioned that Macron's visit occurred just days before Sheikh Tanoun visited Iran. And this is all happening during the JCPOA talks in Vienna. If you could get into a little more uh, detail about the texture of the talks between Macron and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed about Iran. On the one hand, the UAE is on the front line of the Iranian threat to the peninsula, thus the, the purchase of the French warplanes, the pending purchase of the American F-35s, but also the UAE is taking the lead uh, in a regional diplomatic effort of, of engagement uh, with Iran, or at least keeping a, a diplomatic channel open. We've written about this here at O-Monitor. The last time uh, when the JCPOA was negotiated in 2015, there was not a regional dimension to the diplomacy. This time there is, and the UAE is in the center of it. What did you pick up about this change when you were in Dubai? Well, you know, um, uh, there is a big challenge now underway in the, in the whole uh, peninsula, Arabian Peninsula, which is uh, the, the challenge of the renewables. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Gulf is in transition because the, these were countries that uh, uh, largely prospered out of fossil fuels, uh, whether it be uh, oil or gas. Uh, now, uh, after 2020 and uh, the pandemic, uh, the, a, a decision was made to uh, prepare the transition to renewables, i.e. to invest into technology, whether uh, uh, they would use um, uh, the uh, uh, uranium uh, or atomic energy to uh, produce green hydrogen as, as the Emirates have decided to do, or whether they would uh, go for, to uh, solar and wind energy as the NEON project is uh, supposedly aiming at. And uh, this, uh, th this whole economic change, which is 
which is um, in progression in the region together with uh, with Israel also you know the the Abraham agreements were also the the results of uh, of this sort of joint venture I mean Gulf capital uh, plus uh, startup nation technology to a large extent all this uh, which will uh, allow for the the survival of the of the peninsula uh, and of the of, of the, the states there and of the social model uh, for the future is under Iranian threats and uh, everybody in the region remembers the attacks on uh, the uh, Saudi refineries of uh, Homes and Abqaiq in uh, late uh, 2019 which uh, decreased Saudi exports uh, uh, from uh, 5 million uh, barrels a day for a few days until it was repaired. And that was under Trump and the Trump administration wasn't present. And there was this close relationship between uh, the Trump White House and uh, Saudi Arabia at the time. So imagine the level of uncertainty and anxiety uh in uh, in the gulf so on the one hand there is this sort of uh, display of strength vis-a-vis -vis iran and on the other hand uh the peninsula uh, oil domes and shale domes uh, are, are are trying to to open uh, diplomatic channels with uh, with iran because uh, uh, they feel that if Iran is uh, is squared and has nothing to lose, then uh, it will resort to non unconventional uh, weapons. Uh, and, uh, you know, proof was given in, in the past. So this is why I believe um, they, uh, they, are, they, they are they engaged into this, uh, you know, diplomatic uh, exercise and also because why they, uh, you know, absent uh, the, the U.S. in the region or semi-absent, uh, they were keen uh, to have uh, the French president and also the, the future European president uh, around because uh, it gave them some collateral uh, within their complex process of negotiation and uh, 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 muscle showing with Iran. Gil, as you mentioned, when we started, Israeli Prime Minister Bennett is in the UAE as we we're recording this this podcast. And uh, at Monitor, we've documented the tensions, uh, friendly tensions, I would say, in U.S.-Israel relations over differences regarding Iran policy, although the U.S. is, is, is tilting a bit more toward pressure, at least in its negotiating posture. How do you see the Iran issue factoring into the discussions between UAE and Israeli leaders at this point? Is this a, a, a disappointment for Israel that the, the UAE has been so active in kind of regional diplomacy? Well, if you allow me to try to use American colloquial, I would say it's a sort of bad cop, good cop uh, relation, i.e., uh, Definitely, uh, Israel is the is the bad cop is is ready to to hit, uh, whereas um, the UAE tells the Iranians, "Listen, man, uh, be reasonable and uh, do not do things that would harm you." Uh, and uh, 
uh, in a way, uh, everybody's, uh, every one of them is, is playing his own, uh, his own part. Um, an attack, an Israeli attack on, uh, on Iran uh, would uh, be retaliated from, uh, by the Iranians. Uh, you know, uh, along uh, the sort of uh, uh, deterrence uh, strategy that Iran has created, you know, uh, Iran has built this so-called Shiite crescent, as uh, King Abdullah of Jordan said in 2004, um, you know, uh, reaching out to Hezbollah and uh, Hamas uh, on the Mediterranean coast, so that in case it were attacked, on its territory, it would then launch an array of missiles and rockets and what have you from uh, southern Lebanon and from uh, Gaza, as happened earlier this year, in, into Israel, and then cause a number of deaths and damage in Israel that the Iranians believe would be unbearable in America. And no American president could take that, that risk. Uh, and uh, to some extent, they would also probably uh, attack uh, Gulf countries. And you know, this is why the president, uh, precedent, sorry, of uh, the bombings of uh, the Saudi refineries of Abqaiq and Khurais is so present in, in the mind of our Gulfi uh, partners. And uh, the, the more uh, deterrence capacity they have on their own, i.e., uh, you know, the French warplanes that, uh, you know, they just, they predate the F-35s, even though they are not going to be uh, delivered uh, tomorrow morning, of course, it takes some time to, uh, to, to build the planes and to export them. Plus, the drones that uh, Mohammed bin Salman probably, uh, in the, that, plus the drones that Mohammed bin Zayed probably purchased, if I uh, trust the monitor, in uh, in, uh, in Turkey uh, are part and parcel of this counter-deterrence that uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula countries are building against uh, would-be uh, Iranian deterrence. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, following President Macron's visit, uh, there were other visitors coming to Doha, uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, how did you find the mood in Doha? The embargo uh, has been lifted. The Gulf states uh, are, are coming together again. Um, are there still tensions uh, with Qatar over the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, other issues that had been the source of a grievance in the past? Or do you find that the hatchet is, is pretty much buried and uh, they're, they're charting a new course in cooperation? Well, uh, the feeling in Doha was that was triumphant. I mean, they they felt that they had overcome the the embargo and the blockers uh, because of their uh, astute uh, use of their uh, wealth overseas and of the of the their funds and their access uh, not only to to governments but also to uh, uh, to major corporations, whether it be in America and. Uh, and in um, in Europe, and uh, you know, there, there of course, much uh, talk of the not officially, of course, but uh, in the in the corridors and the lobbies of the uh, other way uh, 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 investment group in which uh, the Qatar Investment Authority was present had 
had bought the 666 Fifth Avenue building from the Kushner family. And uh, it was noticed that uh, Jared Kushner, Mike Pompeo are still around uh, in the Gulf those days after they, they left office. And uh, so there was this feeling that, you know, they had resisted. And uh, that's one thing. Uh, and uh, one consequence of that is that they do not need the brothers as much as they did in the past, because they are not in a situation of confrontation, at least with Saudi Arabia anymore. As of the brothers, you know, uh, I think they are not really uh, upbeat those days. Uh, in, uh, in Turkey, uh, you know, when uh, someone like Mohammed bin Zayed comes with $10 billion, you can imagine that his nemesis, the Muslim brothers, uh, may be included in the bargaining. And uh, the, uh, the, the Egyptian Muslim brothers have been uh, told to tone down in Turkey. Uh, the the uh, Turkish Al Jazeera uh, uh, project is now uh, sunk. And, um, you know, uh, watching Al Jazeera in Arabic those last days, um, the pro-brother line that was so prevalent and to some extent that had harmed uh, Al Jazeera and its capacity to have an out a global outreach because it was more and more per perceived as the mouthpiece of the brotherhood, this pro-brother line, to, as I could judge, uh, has been uh, toned down. Uh, so the, the brothers do not seem uh, very relevant anymore politically in this issue. And uh, my, my guess is that the Abraham agreements, to some extent, uh, have, as, as they have started this sort of uh, uh, major transformation of the region from uh, a region which was dependent, still is dependent, still has a lot of money because of oil and gas, but it's thinking into the future, then uh, no one wants to be kept out of it. And this was, this is one of the reasons why I believe uh, Qatar is, is eager to join the process and uh, not to to remain the, the nasty little duck, as we say in French, it sounds better, le vilain petit Qatar. Uh, Gilles, the last stop on the visit was uh, Jeddah, where uh, President Macron met with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. This was uh, simply huge in that it's the first Western head of state to meet the crown prince since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, tell us about the tone of the discussion. There was the announcement of um, an initiative to deal with Lebanon. Uh, be interested to hear how you see that playing out. And uh, do you think there's any uh, signal or a possibility of Saudi Arabia joining the Abraham Accords anytime soon? Uh, I would not say so because, you know, they had Bahrain join, and uh, Bahrain uh, doesn't uh, take uh, significant foreign policy initiatives without consulting with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, you know, Bahrain signed, and Saudi Arabia uh, the, is the custodian of the two holy places. So the third holy place of Islam is, uh, is under Israeli control in uh, El Quds Sharif or Jerusalem. And um, I believe that uh, it, uh, 
uh, it would such an initiative would probably alienate some uh, some support in the in the Muslim world uh, if it were formalized. Uh, it so happens that actually the the Crown Prince of uh, of Bahrain uh, attended uh, the luncheon uh, with uh, President Macron uh, when there was this famous phone call with Najib Mukati, the Lebanese Prime Minister, and uh, the Crown Prince signaled his interest in. Uh, in the in the French warplanes also uh, something also which was duly uh, interpreted because it happened uh, in uh, in Jeddah. Uh, then um, the uh, I guess that the what was uh, most important uh, in the conversation at first was that uh, between the dialogue between the two heads of state uh, was that Saudi Arabia is eager to uh, develop his uh, its uh, 2030 vision, which includes uh, education uh, and uh, access uh, of uh, a Saudi middle class, which uh, in the past did not uh, go train outside the country and uh, um, into um, you know the, the, this interest in, into. Uh, into developing this process of education. Uh, in the past, uh, young Saudis were mostly educated in America and in Britain. There is um, a sort of uh, a lukewarm relation now, uh, or cold relation uh, between uh, the, the present uh, US administration and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. And therefore, uh, the European perspective is more uh, important than ever for Saudi Arabia, even though you know, America still has an enormous amount of access that uh, Europeans that do not have in Saudi Arabia. But as long as uh, President uh, Biden says he does not want to meet uh, uh, the Crown Prince, uh, definitely uh, the Crown Prince is, is looking elsewhere. So this was also an issue, and um, you mentioned, uh, of course, the, the assassination of, of Jamal Khashoggi in, uh, in, in Istanbul. Uh, I was not privy to the talks, of course, uh, between the two heads of states. Uh, Macron has already made a number of statements about that in the, in the past. Uh, the, um, the issue, uh, I believe, was now to uh, to uh, consider that uh, the, the success of uh, development, social, economic, cultural development of Saudi Arabia is quintessential. We have to remember that uh, Wahhabism, Salafism, and uh, a number of things that led to the politicization of Islam uh, was, uh, unche went unchecked before 2015 in, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This is something that has changed significantly since 2017, and this cannot be without positive consequences uh, in, uh, in Europe. As of uh, Lebanon, uh, the initiative had been prepared uh, discreetly ahead, and uh, President Macron was keen to have uh, the, uh, the Crown Prince um, start up uh, sort of uh, new transfer of resources, investments in Lebanon, whether it be in the field of education, culture, health, energy. You know that uh, Iran has, has replaced uh, the other uh, oil exporters in uh, 
providing uh, Lebanon and Syria with uh, with gas, gasoline, sorry, and um, and uh, hence um, uh, this was also something that partook into what you mentioned earlier on, i.e., that. Uh, uh, even the Saudis are, are keen uh, to find um, a level of non-confrontation of a Cold War, if we could go back to those days, with Iran instead of confrontation uh, and uh, reinvesting uh, some amount of money into Lebanon instead of dropping Lebanon because Hezbollah is in charge there. Uh, is part and parcel of this uh, ongoing process of negotiations. Gilles, last question. Your guest on your El Monitor podcast, Reading the Middle East. Your guest this month is Emirati columnist and author and longtime El Monitor contributor, Sultan Saud Al-Qasimi, founder of the Barjil Art Foundation and co-author and editor of the book, Building Sharjah. And you did some field research in advance of the podcast in Sharjah. What can you share with us about the podcast without giving too much away? Well, uh, as I happened to be in Dubai uh, a week before uh, I went with President Macron, I mean, I've been more in Dubai in my uh, this month than ever in my life, uh, and Sharjah also once. Uh, then I, I thought it would be interesting to, to do some, uh, you know, impromptu uh, filming there. And uh, so while we had this uh, interview uh, from remote with, uh, with uh, Sultan uh, Saud al-Qasimi uh, to show some images of his art collection and also of, the, of this sort of modernist architecture, which is now being replaced uh, in, in Sharjah by by a sort of post-modern architecture and uh, how uh, this is a reflection on his, uh, on, on Sultan, from Sultan's point of view, on uh, the way the attempts at building an, an Arab modernism, uh, which was very much influenced by Iraq originally, uh, with the independence of, of the crucial states and other Gulf countries, uh, became sort of engulfed, if I may say so, in, uh, in uh, American globalization and uh, what it led to, uh, uh, why it creates some adverse reactions now. And uh, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, Sultan's action, uh, both as an intellectual, as an art collector, uh, also as a journalist, as an engaged intellectual, is extremely interesting because it allows us to to see below the glittering surface of the skyscrapers of the, of the Emirates uh, and uh, takes us back to what's in the minds of the, of the, of the Emirati population. And uh, this is something that we do not really have access to that much. And uh, so I was glad, I was very, very glad that uh, he accepted to, uh, to come on uh, our reading the Middle East podcast and that he, he, he was so, so convincing. Gilles, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a pleasure having you join us again on, on the Middle East and looking forward, as always, to your El Monitor podcast, Reading the Middle East with Sultan Al-Qasimi. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be with you, Andrew. We will return after this break.
Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests today, Gilles Capel and our production team of Phil Calabro of Al Monitor and Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. First, Reading the Middle East with Shil Capel. And as we mentioned earlier, his guest this month is Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, founder of the Barjil Art Foundation and co-author and editor of the book, Building Sharjah. On Israel with Ben Caspit, his guest this week is Dr. Raz Zimet an expert on Iran at the Institute for National Security Studies. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, hosted by Amber and Zaman and me, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at lmonitor.com.